I've heard from people who used to work there, people I knew, people I didn't know. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it was a closure that they couldn't necessarily articulate themselves or that they weren't comfortable speaking about publicly. That's Hannah Selinger. Hannah is a freelance writer based out of the Hamptons. But before that, she worked for 14 years in the restaurant industry, including a seven-month stint as Momofuku's corporate beverage director. Momofuku is, of course, David Chang's restaurant empire. But back when she worked there in 2008, Momofuku consisted of just three New York restaurants. Hannah had worked for big-name chefs before, including Bobby Flay and Laurent Torrendel. But in an essay she wrote for Eater this past December, Hannah says in her words, In all my years of restaurant work, I had never seen anything like the roiling, red-faced, screaming, pulsing, wrath-filled man that was David Chang. You say you wrote the essay in part because you saw so many of Dave's peers being held accountable for similar behavior while he seemingly got a pass. Yeah, that was sort of the impetus. Uh, I started working on it the same week that Peter Meehan, whom I also had known, uh, left the, the Los Angeles Times. And it kind of occurred to me that all of these people who were circulating, uh, Ken Friedman was a friend of his, Mario Batali, um, and, and Peter, who was in the restaurant pretty much nightly, uh, were sort of being held accountable for things that they had done. And I didn't feel like Dave was. If you haven't read her Eater essay, you should. There's a link to it in this podcast episode's description. There are some very disturbing allegations made against Chang and his business partner and chief operating officer at the time, Drew Salmon. Hannah goes into much greater detail and context than I can in summarizing here, but I will share a few notable moments in case you're not familiar with her story. There was the time she witnessed a young line cook berated by Dave for cooking a pre-shift family meal he did not enjoy. Dave screaming, I will scalp you. I will murder your fucking family. Hannah also shares a personal berating she received from Dave, writing, I recall, too, in sharp relief, the afternoon service meeting in which I was excoriated in front of my staff for purchasing a sparkling Moscato to go with one of the courses at Co., even though Dave himself had told me I had carte blanche to serve whatever I wanted with his food, since I, a certified sommelier through the court of master sommeliers, was the expert. Who the fuck told you that you could buy this? He screamed. Who the fuck do you think you are? And then there was the time Drew called Hannah into his office early in her Momofuku tenure to ask if she was a, quote, chef fucker, the kind of person who goes around trying to fuck famous chefs. The crux of it was that Dave created this system where everybody followed his pattern of behavior. So then it wasn't just necessarily the interactions that I had with him personally, but also the interactions that I had with people who were, you know, modeling their management style or their sort of demeanor in general after the way he um, interacted with people. There is nothing new about David Chang's temper, but what makes Hannah's stories resonate is this is the first time we've heard these stories in the media from a source other than Chang. Hearing the victim's voice, the victim's perspective, it drives home the power dynamic that's at play in these moments and how toxic cultures are created in workplaces. Hannah wrote the essay in part 
as a review of Dave's memoir, Eat a Peach, which came out last year. Dave cops to a lot in Eat a Peach. The book can be startling at times. Dave comes across reflective and contrite about the pain he's caused. It feels very raw, very honest. And that's where Dave has built so much of his reputation and goodwill. But Hannah's perspective shows what Dave has chosen to omit. He's not lying to his audience, but he is editing. One notable omission? Drew Salmon. As Hannah points out, Dave and Drew worked closely together for more than a decade at the top of Momofuku's food chain. Yet, in the entire book, Drew's name never comes up once. In some of the many drafts that got edited uh, of my piece, I had called into question whether or not he knew about Drew, and ultimately we took that part out. But I still do wonder. Chang says on the record that he didn't know anything about what was going on with Drew, but I'm not the only person who had issues with Drew at that company. And so I have trouble believing that it was only one thing that made Momofuku the way that it was for a lot of people. Um, I think it was negligence on the, on the part of a lot of people. And, and I, I think for a sustained period of time. So I, I don't feel like he's completely owned everything that happened there or been completely transparent about it either. In Hannah's Eater essay, Dave issues the following apology. While I do not recall these specific instances, they are entirely consistent with my behavior at the time, which I did not begin to correct until several years later. The bottom line is that I'm sorry. I'm still working to get better and repair many personal and professional relationships, but I also respect that the path to forgiveness does not exist on my terms. No one but me deserves to carry the burden of my past failings. Hannah accepts Dave's apology in the essay, but goes on to point out that Dave didn't really care about the Moscato. He cared, it seemed, more about cutting me down in front of the staff I managed so that they no longer saw me as their boss, but instead as a small, easily flustered, puffy-with-tears young woman. He succeeded. From then on, it was virtually impossible to command respect from my staff. They had seen me as Dave saw me, as someone unworthy of respect. And that was enough. Over the course of the next half hour, Hannah and I discuss how and why Dave has avoided any major backlash for his toxic behavior over the years, the sort of backlash we've seen effectively cancel so many of his food world peers. We also discuss the environment that allowed him to thrive, to become one of the world's most famous chefs, and most importantly, what accountability looks like for David Chang. I'm Rob Patrone, and this is Hot Takes on a Plate on the Believe Podcast Network. Yeah, you know, I, I had read the book, Eat a Peach, before you put out the essay, and I skimmed through it a second time before having this chat with you. And the takeaway was that, you know, he is very likable in his memoir because he feels real. You know, even when he mentions transgressions, like, you know, gesticulating wildly with a knife during a heated moment, it feels like he's talking about a different person. Yeah, I think that's some of the artful framing of the memoir, to be honest with you. But that's not to say that Dave is not a charming person in real life, because I think he is. And I don't dislike him as a person. And I didn't dislike him. You know, I went yeah, out you drinking. You say that. You say that right. in, in the essay. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but that that's, that's part of the confusion of human behavior anyway, right? Like no one is all one thing. And I don't think Dave is all one thing either. I do think that the memoir had intent. I think any writing that any writer undertakes has purpose. And, you know, if it's thoughtful and well, well, um, well done, then it's not just writing on a page. There's in, you know, there's a structure to it. And I think Chang knew that he wanted some sort of absolution. So I don't think it was unintentional to sort of paint himself as this third party that he's, you know, looking down on and talking about. You know, it also takes some of the the shock and the sting out of the moments because he look he did write about moments in the book um, that were volatile and but it takes some of the the sting out of them when you've heard similar before and when there's so many moments you can't focus on just one you're left with this sort of like knowing that something is bad but it, it feels a little abstract and and then you know you're assured at the end that it's being fixed right and I think that's sort of um, that was one of my objections to the book um, was that I felt like it glossed over all of these things and made them into one kind of, you know, it, there was sort of, you know, he, he creates this situation in which he's not necessarily not accountable, but he has, turned all of these situations into one larger conflict and it's hard to feel the passion of how terrible each single scenario is when you see it that way. But you see, this is the challenge, right? Like this is like, I could see you even kind of struggling with your words on this. This is the challenge we all face when we judge people in general. I mean, you, you got to know the guy to an extent and you're even having a hard time sort of parsing through the good, the bad and the ugly. And then that leaves us as sort of the audience, you know, the, the people who maybe eat at his restaurants or consume his media to sit there and parse through this and go, okay, well, what are the intentions? Do we give people the benefit of the doubt? Is this an evil person who is trying to present a nice PR face to make up for transgressions? Or is this a person who actually means well uh, and has made mistakes and is trying to own up to it? I mean, it, it, and I feel like we're in this kind of moment in society where we're all kind of being forced to make a decision on the spot, so-and-so, good or bad. And it, it's right. hard. It's really hard. Well, I think the truth with Chang probably lies somewhere in between. I mean, it, which it's makes not it like, harder. Right. It makes but it really hard. Absolutely. Like, obviously, you know, when you are captain of a huge ship and your livelihood is attached to it, to use a terrible metaphor, um, you know, you you are going to be self-preservationist. It's not like he doesn't want to protect this stuff, and that's fine. We all want to protect what we have, you know. Um, I don't think that that means that he's not sorry, but I think that there's probably a part of him that doesn't really know the full extent of what he did to people. And I'm, I think he doesn't really know how to apologize. Um, that's sort of a part of, you know, his discovery that I have nothing to do with. He's got to come to that on his own. Yeah. And, you know, it's thinking about it in terms of this political moment, you know, we see how easy it is to manipulate people, you know, and, and people, they, they see what they want to see. And so if you're a person who's readily admitting any flaws, this can be very refreshingly candid feeling and relatable. But when you're the one telling the story, of course, as you've pointed out in your essay, you get to be your own editor. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what writers do right there. <clears throat> 
they're in control of the narrative. So I, yeah, before my piece came out, the obviously had been tracking what people were saying about the book and it had, you know, it actually hadn't gone as sort of viral as I thought it would. I mean, I thought more people would read it. I didn't hear a ton of press about it. There were some reviews, but the feedback I got in general from people who read the book out of context was that he was sort of a hero for owning the behavior. But that was, for a lot of people, a very surface level view because they didn't know more about what was going on in the actual business. Well, yeah. And it's, it's you know, the analogy I'd make with that, it's like, you know, when someone's seemingly owning their mistakes, it's kind of like when you fight with a significant other and instead of getting defensive, they say, yeah, you're right. Like, where are you left to go from there? <laughs> you know, it's like even when you have the right to attack someone because they're wrong, it's hard to do so when they're agreeing with you. Even if you know that the argument isn't over. <laughs> right. It's just it's kind of it leaves you kind of like, um, what's next? I mean, I think about it, you know, I, I'm just really thinking a lot these days about quote unquote cancel culture and who like you I mean it's why you wrote the essay. You know, you saw Peter Meehan, for lack of a better term, getting canceled and going, well, what 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 about David Chang? And it's interesting because the people who seem to survive these moments are the ones that are seemingly at least upfront, who who own it, who kind of call themselves out before somebody else can. You know, I think about like one of my idols in the broadcasting world is David Letterman. He's not right. a perfect person, but people forget that because he's owned it. You know, he he says, yeah, that was me. I'm so sorry. And it's like, how yeah, do you fight he went that? right on the air with it. Yeah. <laughs> how do you fight that? Like, <laughs> you know? It's also a power struggle. I mean, I had discussed, um, I haven't heard from Dave, but there was, he obviously knew the piece was coming out um, probably about a month beforehand because we started getting we started asking for on the record responses uh, probably about a month before the piece actually came out. So he knew, and he didn't know the full context of the piece, but he knew enough to know that it was going to be a long form piece detailing my experience at Momofuku. And he had to basically respond to, you know, did, did he remember me? He talked to my editors for quite a while. Um, the sense that I got from my editors after the first couple of phone calls was that at some point he would reach out to me, um, to talk. I haven't, but, uh, I mean, and, and then did you hope he would not necessarily. I think what I thought was that it was very possible for him to want to have a public conversation, like something on his podcast. Um, and my feeling about that would be that I wouldn't want to do that because that sort of disrupts the power that I've established in the essay, Chang gets to have his voice heard all the time. And it exploits your position. Yeah. I mean, it. then I'm walking into his den, right? right. Then he's, he's the one with the power again. I don't, it's not like I wield a ton of power in this situation, but this is one example where I've, you know, people and consider me the exemplar for other people who used to work for him. We get a voice. Um, when the person in power has had a voice for a really long time. I don't necessarily want to disrupt that, what's what I've established there. Well, it's interesting. I actually just literally on my phone as we were talking pulled up Twitter because I was curious 
I've been kind of tracking David Chang on Twitter, a guy who used to be very vocal on Twitter. He hasn't tweeted anything since December 20th. And I'm yeah, no, and he knew coming out the twenty first. <laughs> so, so literally, he has been complete. He's put a couple things that have been very benign on Instagram, but he's gone for a guy who's very, very, very vocal on social media. It's been radio silence since this happened. Yes. Um. Yes, I. I'm still pretty sure he will reach out to me. I think he was waiting for everything to die down, and 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 I should say like. The fact that I haven't heard from him is not like a condemnation. I don't, um, I don't, I'm sure he needed time to process it. This happened right before the holidays. Could uh, lawyers be behind that too? Do you think it, it stretches in that direction? I'm not worried about legal. But do you think he is? Um, I mean, you know, I, I only he knows how much he was involved in, right? Like, you know, uh, he claims he didn't know about the, am I allowed to swear on here? Yeah, go ahead. He claims that he didn't know about the chef fucker comment, for instance. Um, I, I don't know that that's possible. It opens doors to what else happened during the time at Mom, the 12 years that I wasn't at Momofuku, right? There were things that happened. Um, I'm sure with other people. So I, you know, he could have also read my piece and thought, I didn't know about all of this stuff. What else did I not know about? There's so many permutations that are possible with something like this. It's not possible for me to say. I I mean, it, I don't know that he has li legal liability. It doesn't for me, but maybe from other people. I, that's possible. I don't know. I mean, you've, you mentioned in the, in the story the non-disclosure agreements that people have to sign. Did you have to sign one when you were at Momofuku, or was that before no. that was a thing? It was before. And also, okay. um, my parents, well, my father's since died, but both my parents are attorneys or were attorneys. Um, so I can't imagine myself being in any situation, even when I was much younger, where I would have signed an NDA. I mean, they, they would have told me not to. But it's interesting because he used an NDA to shield himself from the Peter Meehan situation yeah. when it broke with Lucky Peach and the, the fact that Peter Meehan was, you know, fired from his job as editor of the L a food editor at the LA Times for, you know, transgressions. Um, and, you know, he basically wouldn't speak about it because he said, well, I, I have an NDA and I can't. Right. But what did that read like to you? I mean, I can only tell you what it read like to me. It read like he knew things that he wasn't disclosing, whether or not there's legal culpability there, whatever, it still reads as I knew this and I can't say anything. About well, it. it's interesting because usually people on lower levels are forced to sign NDA. So usually an NDA to me is a power play, right? It like, so like, play, yeah. you know, you, the employee will sign an NDA because me as the boss, I want to protect myself. It, right. it, it was odd to me. Someone in Chang's position would sign an NDA. Like why? Like it just doesn't, I'm not saying he didn't sign one, but it, uh, but it's just very curious to me as to the why there, right? Like, Unless, yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, look, obviously Peter Meehan left Lucky Peach and, you know, I don't know, like, you never know with these things. I mean, obviously, you know, breakups and, um, you know, situations where things like that happen, where powerful people leave positions and, you know, in, in this case, a magazine, you know, dissolved, like, 
you never know how that goes down with lawyers and all the ramifications, but you do wonder why, you know, maybe they were signing NDAs to protect each other. Yeah, that certainly has occurred to people like me and other people um, out there. It's, it's hard to know. Um, I agree with you. NDAs are typically used um, to protect the person in power. You know, my husband is under an NDA for his job which I guess technically means that I am, but um, it's not typically used between peers unless you know you have something to conceal. I mean, again, that's extrapolation and I, I am hesitant to put sort of more out there than what I have any, you know, I, I have no way of knowing what they knew about each other or what the arrangement there was, but it's definitely not a traditional situation. Being Home with Hunker is a podcast where we visit with designers, artists, and creatives in the spaces that express and shape their identities, their homes. If you love design and decor, if you're curious about how people live, or if you've been transitioning or transforming your own home, you'll love these honest conversations. Join us weekly at Being Home with Hunker. Visit hunker.com forward slash podcast where you can find subscribe and listen to the show and you know this whole conversation we're having is very complicated we've, we've already outlined it it's it's not black and white it's lots of shades of gray and the one thing we haven't mentioned in this discussion that i think is so important to it another layer is the mental health aspect because you know david chang has readily discussed his mental health issues you know he is diagnosed with bipolar disorder and you know he has taken medications and he sees a therapist regularly and you know i think those issues are are very real i think they are issues we need to talk about more i think dave to his credit has had amazing courage to do so and that's helped a lot of people i think when you destigmatize those issues that is a big deal especially when you have a platform but at the same time it also can't be used as a meat shield yeah, I think that's why I chose to largely omit it from my piece. I didn't want to um, be the one to either applaud him or take away that from him. I think absolutely there should be more transparency. There's tons of mental illness in different forms um, in the restaurant industry. It's a tough place to work. Um but yeah, you know, there are plenty of people with bipolar disorder, um, people who I've known in my own life who don't have the same behavioral patterns. So it's, it's still, you know, it's what you do with it. And that's not, I'm not attempting to victim blame him at all, but, um, but no, but this is what makes it hard. This is why I right. wanted to talk to you because it's like, you know, look, the, these problems are real, but where do you draw the line, right? Like what what where is the line? Because obviously if you have a mental illness, it doesn't let you murder people and I'm not saying obviously right. they murdered anyone, but th this is the point I'm <laughs> kind of, you know, but, but but this is sort of the line, you know. It's it's like what's the punishment? What's what's too much? What's not enough? You know, like I I think we were too accepting probably of certain behavior in the past. And now in some ways, maybe in some cases we're too intolerant, you know, in terms of a course correction, but Dave is sort of an exception to that intolerance. Yeah. For a lot of people, I think, um, he always, well, it's not, it's, I say it in my work, right. His entree into the public scene, if you want to call it via the New Yorker, um, 
from the McFacor profile. And, you know, he was known before that, but that was really his um, most public piece at that time. Uh, he is upfront with his anger from the very beginning. So there's never a point in the construction of David Chang as celebrity that omits that part of his personality. It's not like you can say, oh, you know, Ken Friedman seemed really great, but as it turns out, he had a rape room on the third floor of the Spotted Pig. It was not, there was nothing untoward, not, I shouldn't say untoward, but there was nothing hidden about this because it was always part of the persona that he created. And so when we talk about how the public accepts it or even embraces it in some ways, it's because the only David Chang they have ever known is the one that was created around this sort of mythology of anger. Um, to separate him from that is to sort of separate who he is from who he is. And that's how he became lionized in the first place. So it's hard for people to understand that the cultural cachet of all of that had real and lasting damage for a lot of people. You know, and I wonder with the media reaction, you kind of hit on it earlier. You were talking about how, while it was well-received, the essay, it, there wasn't a, I noticed there wasn't a lot of chatter among the usual food media people who chatter about literally everything on Twitter. You know, we're talking about cast iron pans and other nonsense and, and every little scandal and everybody's jumping in. And with the Chang one, it was a lot of cr crickets from a lot of big name people at the very beginning, at least. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder why. Like, do you think people are afraid to challenge him? Do you think it's that maybe they sort of feel guilty that they created this sort of thing in the first place? Or do you think it's just that it's a kind of an incestuous world where a lot of these people are his friends at this point. Well, I think that that's definitely part of it. But I, I also, you know, you're seeing the sort of retweets and all of this stuff, but I'm seeing the Twitter follows and the like. So you may have a different perspective of the reaction from the food community. You know, many, obviously Pete Wells, but many other big people shared it and got involved with it, at least on a personal level, um, you know, you, I think, I, I think, I think it was widely read by people in the food community yes. and recognized. And I don't know that everyone felt like they needed to promote it, but people have kind of gotten in touch with me in other tertiary ways that have indicated to me that they are on board, if that makes sense. So like the reaction from them has been in agreement or that, uh, no, there hasn't been any kind of, I don't know. I mean, I have to assume that, and, and this is again, extrapolation, but I have to assume that if like a major food player in the food world reads my piece and then follows me on Twitter, that that is a validation of my work. It could also be, you know, again, I'm not trying to deny that, but you know, I think some people also they like, for lack of a better term, a, a good car wreck, you know, or they're just interested. Yeah. Um, I try not to assume, you know, when someone follows me, they're following me because they like me. They might be following me because they're, they, they're, you know, kind of want to see what's next, if you will. Um, you know, I just think it's interesting because a lot of those people who are quick to give up opinions did not give up opinions on this one. Who are you referring to? That's what I'm really curious about. <sighs> I don't want to call out names specifically. <laughs> okay. uh, I know that's that's chicken shit of me. 
Um, but there's there's an echo chamber with food media, right? And so a lot of times when a big story breaks, everybody writes about it then. You know, I think about like the squirrel situation, right? Like everybody jumped on that story, every outlet. And with this one, there wasn't, you know, Pete Wells did weeks later, but there wasn't a lot of jumping on it. You know, some of these people had personal relationships with Chang, right. but then for other people, like, you know, I have an editor at Eater who worked for him for several years. I always thought that they had had a good relationship and she tweeted the piece and promoted the piece and uh, talked to me about the piece. So it, there were, um, there were surprises. Um, oh, and give Eater credit, by the way, because Eater works with Chang in in the sense that they, you know, like he does, you know, he's got a production arm that's working with Eater in conjunction with Hulu. Like they, yeah. they like that, that's yeah. a working relationship that they put on the line to put this out. They were great to work with. I can't speak highly enough about them. I mean, I had a very unique editorial situation with them. I went to them with an essay that was already written, partly written. Um, and then we worked together as a collaborative team, me and basically two editors for four months to get it to the wow. point where it was going to go out. Um, and they increased my pay twice without me even asking. I mean, they were just an incredible team of people um, to work with. They did so much due diligence on, you know, background to make sure that I was protected and that my story was protected. They contacted my sources and really talked to my source because I had some corroborating sources for things like the chef fucker comment. There had been people that I told contemporaneously, um, which is what made it okay for us to print that. So um, they really did an unbelievable job. And I was nervous. I think when I was shopping the piece to begin with, because I shopped it through a bunch of outlets that every person I told was a liability because they would have some relationship with Dave. No, totally, totally. It's it's the, that's why it's been interesting to me that this story didn't gain more traction. I mean, like how many podcast interviews have you done since it came out? This is the first, but I was asked to do a different one, but I was going to have to go into the city for it and I'm not currently going into the city. So. <laughs> it was a bit, I mean, that's kind of to me surprising, right? Like I would think that your phone would be ringing off the hook, that your email would be lighting up and it, it's clearly not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it didn't, um, it went to a lot of different people and it, it, a lot of different people read it. Um, but there wasn't an attendant media response. There was a passage in Eat a Peach about Major Domo a couple of years ago. Dave's talking about being a week or two from opening Major Domo, you know, his first West Coast restaurant in Los Angeles. And he, confronted a sous chef who he deemed to be sloppy labeling his mise en place. The chef responded by saying, I just didn't think we were being so serious yet, which Dave, it set him off in what he called a quote, a fit for the ages. He dropped F-bombs. He was shaking. And Dan Pashman, who hosts The Sporkful, had him on his podcast in September. And Dan asked Dave, quote, have you ever been worried that current or former employees of yours would speak out in a way that would be bad for you? And Dave said, quote, I have to own it. And I mean, I've talked to a couple, but that's been part of me understanding that I can't ask them for forgiveness. I have to earn that forgiveness. I've been as honest. And then he kind of pauses. 
I've talked to a lot of the people about it, and there's a couple people that I hope one day can see things for what they are, and I can't do anything other than work harder at being better. Now, this was back in September, and I'm curious, what do you think he meant by, quote, there's a couple of people that I hope one day can see things for what they are? I mean, I couldn't speak to who he's referring to. I know that he has um, ongoing relationships with people who used to work there and that he talks to them and that there, there are, I can, I mean, I'm not going to tell people's names, but I know from people who've reached out to me that there are people, former employees who are in regular contact with him that for their own part are sort of a unraveling of this trauma. I don't know who else he's referring to or what else he's referring to. You know, I know that there were other people who were harmed by this business. Some people I knew and some I didn't until more recently, but, uh, I, it's a weird quote. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, he starts off with all the right words, you know, having to own it, you know, talk to a couple of people, you know, he can't ask for their forgiveness. You know, he has to earn it all makes sense. And then, this idea of, you know, you know, can't do anything than, you know, and he ends it with they can't do anything other than work harder at being better. But that idea of hopefully one day they can see things for what they are. It's it, it it's it's weird. It, and that's why I was curious what your thoughts were, because I I'm having a hard time interpreting the quote. But maybe I thought with your your experience, maybe you would have some insight into it. I don't know what the. R is in that sentence. Um, I guess the question would be for me, what does he think the trade-off is? Because that's sort of what it feels like. It feels like he says, well, you know, this is what you live through and this is what you get in return. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, is he saying this is what you live through. If you want to work at a huge restaurant, this is what you want to, this is what you live through. If you become famous, I don't know if it's directed at him or at the people that he's talking about. That's, I think at the end of the day, Dave has work to do on Dave and for all the contrition and all of the, um, all of the attempted apologies, I think at the end, he hasn't really, done the work on him. I mean, that, that seems to be what the problem always was. You know, it's interesting because at the end of the essay, you talk about accountability and what you'd like to see from, from Dave, you know, you mentioned employees being released from non-disclosure agreements. You mentioned the fact that he doesn't really apologize all that much, um, specifically, Um, But you also say the following. You say, quote, the one thing he can offer up that is commensurate with the scope and scale of the grief he has caused is the space he occupies in his restaurants and in culture. He can cede it to someone who will use it to change this toxic industry that has broken so many of us. What do you mean by this? I mean, I'm I'm calling for him to step back. Um, I don't think he's going to read my essay and say, well, I seed um financial interests or even the face of the brand but i do think that he's got to have a reckoning at some point what does stepping back look like i don't know um you know 
there are other people who could inherit Momofuku and possibly change it. Or I, I certainly don't want to see more people lose jobs in the restaurant industry. I don't want to see more harm caused to the people who have bolstered um, the fragile food system uh, that has been so you know, destroyed by the pandemic. But it doesn't mean that you can't call for change. I, when I worked at Momofuku, obviously Dave was in the kitchen every single day. So I'm sure that the structure of the business is different, but I can't say that the culture is different. I don't know the answer to that. And, and you acknowledge culture. that in the essay, you know, you acknowledge that a lot may have changed. You're, you're, you don't work there anymore. Uh, but I'm curious with this, you know, when you talk about kind of stepping back, like, do, do you think he should have these media platforms? Do you think he should be as vocal? Uh, do you think he should, you know, be having TV shows? Like, how does that all play into this? I don't, but I, or I should say, I don't want him to not have a livelihood, but I don't know that he should be the face of cooking in America if, or the the face of um, food culture in America, because really he's, he's not so much a cook anymore as a cultural icon. Right. Um, I think maybe he has to let that part of it go, but I also am realistic. I don't think that anybody, you know, really believes that Dave is going to have a moment with my piece and say, well, it's time for me to stop doing these public things. I mean, you know, again, this is what makes it so complicated is that he often uses his voice in good ways these days. You know, he he does interviews with people where he's promoting the right kind of people often. He, you know, I'm not saying all of that, what he does is altruistic and good, but, you know, it's complicated. Somebody else could do that, though. There are other people who could do that. Oh, no, um, absolutely. But uh, but I, and I'm not pointing this out to no, even play devil's advocate or defend anything he's done. I'm just pointing it out because I think it's what makes it murky. It's what makes it, you know, it's not like, you know, to use an example, it's not like Gordon Ramsay who, you know, is just right. putting out garbage, you know? Right. He's actually using his anger in ways to to monetize it still to this day, which shocks me, you know? What has Gordon Ramsay put out in the last ever, you know, that, that has actually, you know, improved society? Whereas I think you could make an argument with someone like David Chang, like, well, he, he he uses his platforms to to talk about mental illness and he you know promotes you know the right kind of voices and you know not, that's not to, to a hospitality fund in the south yeah right it's, right that's not to say he doesn't step in it occasionally but um with his hot takes but you know it, it's it's it, it, it i think it's what makes him an interesting case study yeah it's complicated i think there's you know, maybe his voice informs that perspective, but off camera. Maybe he's the one who's the director and he says like, this is the kind of representation the Momofuku brand should have, but I'm not the one who should be um, in the spotlight anymore. If the David Chang of the 2000s had opened his first restaurant now in this climate, do you think he would have survived? No, I don't think that there's room for that. Uh, I feel like the restaurants that I cut my teeth on are extinct in a certain way. The behaviors, I mean, we were, we did things, we acted in certain ways that would really never be okay in 2021. Um, and I think Momofuku is probably a good example of that too. The just 
lots of different crazy things that happen there. I mean, imagine now if I were to go into a meeting with the COO of a company and he were to call me a chef fucker, like that wouldn't, (laughs) it just wouldn't happen. Right. No. Right. Um, Or it might happen, but there would be, there would be ramifications. Consequences, Right. Like I wouldn't have been now in 2021 that that same younger version of me wouldn't be afraid to go to a superior and be like, this guy needs to be fired. Um, but then it seemed very much like I was the one who was in jeopardy of losing my job. I think we saw anger differently back then, right? Yeah. I think we saw anger differently. I think we saw sexual harassment differently, which I think that comment was teetering on sexual harassment. Um, Oh, no, it was, (laughs) I don't even think it was teetering. It was. I think all of that has changed for the better. Me too has really brought a lot of things into, uh, clarity for a lot of people. I had, you know, the, the first person I called when Drew talked to me that way was my father, who was a liberal attorney. And he told me to stay at the job, you know, and he was a feminist. He was, I mean, as leftist as they come for lawyers, but, um, he thought that I wouldn't be able to get another job like that. And that's where we were. 12 years ago or 13 years ago, however long it's been. And I don't think that we're in the same place. I like to think that we're not in the same place. I'd like to think that if this happened today and he were, my dad were still alive and I were to call him, he would be like, immediately report this guy and quit your job. Can progress be two seemingly different things at once? Can it be creating safe workplaces where employees have a voice while also allowing powerful people the room to change and grow as people to rehabilitate. Maybe, but that rehabilitation involves trust and accountability. It's hard to judge people we don't know and even people we do know because often we don't know them well enough to accurately know their intentions. Then again, do intentions matter when people are hurt? It's tricky. Dave has done a lot of work to right his wrongs, but he still has more to do. What do you think? Let me know on social media at Rob Patron TV on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also leave a comment on our Apple Podcasts show page. And while you're there, please rate the show. Five stars, of course. And make sure to subscribe or follow Hot Takes on a Plate wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Not all episodes are as serious as this one. We go back and forth between fun food debates and introspective and timely interviews with some of the most interesting people in the culinary world. Make sure to check our back catalog if you like what you heard here. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out at BLEAV.com. I'm Rob Patron. Till next time, ciao.